Welcome, gals, ghouls, and badass days of the world to Horror Hangover. Cass can't be here today because of a death in the family, but I am your co-host, Ryan C. Bradley. Hello. And today I'm joined by the author of Let the Woods Keep Our Bodies, E.M. Roy. Welcome, Ellie. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I uh, I am Ellie Roy. <laughs> um, I write under the pseudonym E.M. Roy, and my debut novel just came out from Ghoulish Books in October 2023. Uh, it's called Let the Woods Keep Our Bodies, which is a sort of Twin Peaks meets my best friend's exorcism, sort of coming-of-age sapphic weird small town tale, which sort of leads into the movies that we're going to be talking about today. Yes, it's a very cool book. Y'all should check it out. Today we're talking about, we have it titled as Hell as a Teenage Girl. We're talking about female coming of age stories. Yes. Um, so let's hop into the history, which I feel like I need to add a disclaimer at the beginning because I have not, nor have I ever been a teenage <laughs> girl. In fact, my parents insisted that I go to an all boys Catholic high school. Oh, so as wow. a teenager, yeah. I was like very isolated from teenage <laughs> girls when I was their age. So please That's correct okay. me if I say anything wrong or doesn't work. I'll, I'll give you a heads up. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Because I'm pretty much as far from an expert as you can get when it comes to this particular topic within horror. <laughs> Another small point before we start the history, you could make the argument that a lot of final girls went through something that made them come of age. And I'm going to leave yeah. off those particular movies, not because I disagree with that, but because the list of movies would be like 40 pages long at that point, if we included yeah. every slasher that gets defeated by a teenage girl, which is... Absolutely. Um, I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, coming of age stories have been around since around the 8th century. And in fact, you've probably read the, the first one, maybe not the first one, but Telemachus's story in the first four books of the Odyssey is considered a coming of age story. We won't waste a lot of time on that, but I did want to ask you this question, Ellie. Are coming-of-age stories an aspect of real life or something that fiction has kind of grafted into our perception? Oh, man, that's a good question. I mean, I feel like they are, like, inspired by real life in a lot of ways, whether they, uh, you know, these coming-of-age, these characters who are undergoing, like, a building roman type of journey throughout their story, they are facing you know horrors or any like challenges that are reflective of perhaps what the author had, has experienced in their time just you know expanded upon in a metaphorical way so I think that they definitely have roots in real life and especially like I, I won't talk too much about my own book <laughs> but every work of fiction I feel like is a it's a reflection of the author at that point in their life. I wrote Let the Woods Keep Our Bodies. I started writing it when I was 18. Uh, I was very, very young as, in terms of like authors writing stuff, especially as a as a debut. So I definitely see that book as like a reflection of my own coming of age in a way. Yeah, that's awesome. Was <laughs> Let the Woods Keep Our Body the first book you wrote or the first book you published or both? Both. Both, actually. Dang, yeah, that's awesome. Um, I, I've started, you know, I have several like works in progress, <laughs> but Let the Wood Keep Our Bodies is the first one, the very first one that I started. I started writing it while I was in college when I was like a freshman or a sophomore. And then it is also the first one I finished. And of course, the first one that is officially published. So it's a very like a special story to me. Congratulations. Heck yeah. Thank you. Um, and on the other topic, do you feel like, because I think I think that coming of age is real, but I also feel like people come out of age too. 
And they're kind of like riding a curve, like of waves where like you come to age about something and then you go back and you're like, okay, well, I'm still going to sit in my underwear and watch wrestling on Saturday night. (laughs) Um, And then you have to like come to age like, okay, I should probably wear pants in case someone comes by and rings the doorbell. (laughs) So do you think everyone has a coming of age or do you think it's like unique to certain people? I think everyone has like some version of a coming of age story uh obviously it it probably doesn't look the same between any individual people but i think that's like that's a good point that you made i think people probably have like multiple coming of ages quote unquote throughout their lifetime and there's not like a one like you turn 18 and suddenly you're enlightened you know it's cyclical almost cool Let's get into the the movies. So 1970, we had a Czechoslovakian surrealist film, Valerie's Week of Wonders, where a teenage girl meets a series of nightmarish creatures, which is kind of a coming-of-age story. Our first breakout film's novel debuted in 1974, and that is Carrie by Stephen King. It sold well enough to earn a paperback edition before Brian De Palma's 1976 film, and then it absolutely took off, and it turned Stephen King into a hit machine. I think I've read him call himself a Hittosaurus Rex, which is absolutely <laughs> true. And like, seriously, a huge chunk of the the big four publishing industry still exists because of how many books this guy sells. For sure. um, we'll talk about the 76 version at length for our first breakout film. It did get a sequel in 1999, a made for TV remake in 2002, and another feature film adaptation in 2013. The original screenwriter, Lawrence D. Cohen, also adapted the film into a musical in 1988, and it was one of the biggest flops in Broadway history. There's a book about Broadway flops, and it's titled Carrie's in the title because of how <laughs> notorious it is. Yeah. Although I was watching an interview with Cohen to get ready for this, and he talked about how, like, although it was this huge flop then, it's really connected with high school adaptations. So a lot of high schools use the script he wrote for Broadway and the songs that were written for that to do it. I don't know if that's, like, the truth or he's, like, looking at it from rosy eyes. Yeah. But yeah, so 1975, Picnic at Hanging Rock came out, which is a great movie directed by Peter Weir, also based on a book. It tells the story of a girls' school picnic where a number of the girls disappear, some return, and they're unable to remember what happened. And the Mm -hmm. film withholds a ton, and it always kind of leaves you, even at the very end, you don't ever know what happened. It's a very cool movie. I guess that's kind of a spoiler, but but there it is. Company of Wolves came out in 1986 based on a short story by the great Angela Carter, who collaborated on the script. That same year, Carlos Enrique Taboada released the excellent Poison for Fairies. He actually frequented this genre, also directing Even the Wind is Afraid in 1968 and Darker Than Night in 1975. And he's one of those people who's like not talked about enough. I think he's an absolute phenomenal talent. We should all be talking about him more. Heathers came out in 1989 when Nona Ryder and Christian Slater, it's classic high school satire. It was also made into a musical in 2010, which is like a trend with these. Do you think there's like a reason we keep getting teenage coming of age stories as musicals? I don't know. It is like a a weird trend that I, I noticed as well. I don't know if there's like a specific reason, to be honest, but Heathers is one of my favorite movies ever. I love Heathers. Very cool. It's a great movie. I was movie. one of those kids who like watched Heathers when they were 15 or 16 and like it altered them on like an atomic level. <laughs> like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It also got, there's a TV show in 2018, which I've not seen. I have um, not seen that either. The Craft came out in 1996, which was Nev Campbell's year. We were talking about Scream just before it started, and she was in The Craft and Scream in the same year. 
after having almost no credits before that, really, or no big credits before that. Crazy. And she's one of the four teenagers in this film. Beloved take on high school witchcraft. It got a requel in 2020 from Blumhouse from director-writer Zoe Lister-Jones. Four years later, Ginger Snaps debuted. It's our second breakout film, so I'll leave off a lot of stuff for later. It got a sequel, Ginger Snaps 2 Unleashed, and a prequel, Ginger Snaps Back, The Beginning, which were filmed at the same time in 2003. And a TV show is currently in development, although I don't know how the writer's strike and the Screen Actors Guild strike have affected that. That's true. Yeah, I did not know that they were going to make a TV show. That's exciting. Yeah, they've been talking about it for years, and I'm very hopeful it happens, but... We'll find out. You, you know how it is with the stuff getting announced. Right. 2006, we had Pan's Labyrinth. And I wasn't sure if I should include this one, especially given the kind of ambiguous ending. Mm-hmm. But Ophelia is a girl in a war forced to grow up and having visits from hallucinations of supernatural creatures or maybe supernatural creatures. Guillermo del Toro loves kind of tap dancing on that line. One of his best films. 2007, the next year, we got Teeth. The leader of a high school chastity club discovers a biological adaptation that helps her from unwanted advances. And I haven't seen that one, but it was like very popular when I was in college and I had never read the description. All I heard was the phrase vagina dentata repeatedly. Yeah. So I'm going to have to see it now after like actually reading the description. That sounds very good. I haven't actually seen that one either, but I what there is one book I read, uh, Haley Piper's Queen of Teeth, uh, which sort of also deals with vagina dentata, which is very exciting. Nice. Uh, it's really cool. I don't know. It's like very grotesque body horror type of thing, but it's done in a really interesting way. I have a copy. I got to get around to reading it soon. Very good. Very sci-fi. Nice. 2009, we got Jennifer's Body which was released and very unfairly panned. And -hmm. thankfully it's been kind of reevaluated and reclaimed since then. Our episode title is a quote from the film. It stars Megan Fox as a teenage girl turned into a succubus after being used as a virgin sacrifice, but not being a virgin. Yes. I love that movie. Obviously there's, there's things that didn't age very well (laughs) with it, but I just, I love it. That's probably like top three favorite movies of all time for me. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. 2010, We Are What We Are, which is supposedly a sequel to Guillermo del Toro's Kronos, which I've seen both movies and I would have not guessed that from watching them. Um, But it tells the story of teenage girls learning what kind of meat they've actually been eating their whole lives. And it got an English remake in 2013. 2012, Excision, a delusional high school girl with aspirations of being a surgeon suffers from orgasmic nightmares. We got two in 2013, Jug Face, directed by Chad Crawford Kinkle, wrote and directed this Lauren Ashley Carter coming-of-age story. Trigger warning, this one's heavy on incest. Haunter also came out in 2013. Abigail Breslin stars in this time loop film. The Witch came out in 2015. Robert Ecker's excellent debut tells the story of a teenage girl trying to survive the New England wilderness after her family is exiled. It's a great one. I love The Witch. As a New Englander, because I, I grew up in Connecticut. Oh, do yeah. you feel like it really captured our experience? Definitely like captured the weirdness of the woods that I feel like all of New yeah. England has. <laughs> Absolutely. The same year David Robert Mitchell's equally popular debut, It Followed, tells the story of a teenage girl who loses her virginity and finds herself targeted by a supernatural sex chainmail monster. Yeah, it's so cool. I love it. Oh, yeah. They're going to make it a sequel. Yes, they follow. Um, Yeah, I'm very excited. It should be good. 
2015 also had The Fits, which was Anna Rose Homer's directorial debut, where a dance troupe suffers from seizures. 2016, mm-hmm. Raw was another phenomenal debut, The one, this one from filmmaker Julia DeCourneau. Um, and she tells the story of a first-year veterinary student developing the urge to eat human meat. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is our third film from a debut director. Do you think there's like something about debuts and coming of age that kind of just go together? I think there's definitely a connection there. Yeah. Like even, you know, my debut novel is a coming of, coming of age story. I think in intrinsically, a lot of creators will find themselves telling a coming of age story as like their first official quote unquote, like creative work, even if they don't necessarily intend to do that. It just sort of ends up that way. And I know that that was the case for me with Let the Woods Keep Our Bodies. Like I didn't set out with the intention for it to be a coming of age story, but just because of the time in my life that I was writing it. And by the time I finished it, it turned into that kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Same question, but we also see a lot of cannibalism and coming of age stories, not your book. Yeah. Specifically, Raw and Teeth and We Are What We Are. Do you think there's some kind of like symbolic link between cannibalism and coming of age? Oh, man. I don't know. Like cannibalism has so many like interesting metaphorical applications, especially in like movies and literature. Like it can be like an all-consuming type of like love and adoration or it can be like a transformation like there's so many different applications of it so I definitely think that there is some kind of link between like a coming-of-age story and cannibalism in a way like I don't know it's hard to articulate but I my brain is making the connection you know (laughs) it's cool 2016 we also got the neon demon from Nicholas Winding Refn 2017 Pie Wacket, where a teenage girl tries to cast a spell on her mother in a fit of rage. And then, unfortunately for her, it works. 2018, we got a three. We got The Wilding, starring Liv Tyler and Brad Dourif. It was a crazy cast. Gwen, which is a period piece about a young girl whose parents try to hide their world from her. And The Dark, which is a Australian flick featuring a dead young girl coming of age. We also got Knives and Skin from Jennifer Reeder that year. Um, and she loves working with this theme. So a lot of her movies have it in them. And a lot of her movies are great. I love her. 2020 also had The Other Lamb, which I reviewed for Wicked Horror back when it came out. It's about a teenage girl being raised and kind of escaping a religious cult. 2021 had... We're all going to the World's Fair, which I've been meaning to watch forever. And according to Screen Rant, it's a coming-of-age story about a teenage girl obsessed with a horrific role-playing game. 2021 also had Hellbender, which is an Adam family film. They do great work. It's about a magical teenage girl coming into her own despite her mother's resistance. Very good movie from Friends of the Pod. 2022 had a Spanish flick, Piggy, where a bullied teenage girl finds a strange kinship with a serial killer. 2022 also had Bones and All with Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell as teenage cannibals. Um, We just kind of talked about the link between cannibalism and this. And Hatching came out in 2022 as well, where a 12-year-old girl finds a strange egg and tries to take care of it. Jennifer Reeder's back in 2023 with Perpetrator, which is now on Shudder. It lives inside as writer-director Bishel Dutta's feature debut, and it follows a teenage girl struggling to balance her East Indian heritage, with assimilating into American culture while dealing with some supernatural stumbling blocks. 2023 also had My Animal, which is also a directorial debut, this one by Jacqueline Castell. 
And this film is about a young werewolf clashing about keeping her lycanthropy a secret after she falls in love. And also this year, Talk to Me, the feature debut of the Philippu Brothers and a surprise hit earlier this year. I guess it'll be last year, probably by the time we release this, um, but a very scary film about a new age ritual going viral. So you probably noticed as we're going, like 70s, 80s, 90s, we had very little coming of age stories. Like 2010s, especially starting with like really with Ginger Snaps, we have like a flood of them. What makes this kind of story so fruitful in this time period? Good question. There's so many, there's so much media out there these days, so many different various types of stories from all different types of perspectives. You know, filmmaking, for example, or writing novels is more accessible than ever to to anybody uh, who has like the technology. Like if you have an iPhone, you can make a movie. If you, you know, an iPhone, you can write a book if you wanted to. It's like storytelling is more accessible than ever, which is why I think we're seeing a lot of like younger writers, filmmakers making stories sooner rather than later, which is why I think we see that spike in like the 2000s-ish. Yes. That's a very good answer. Um, I'm curious, do you ever write on your phone? I have not written like a full length story on my phone, but I have a notes app where I I jot down like if I have a scene in my head and I've just got to write it down and I don't have like a notepad in front of me. (laughs) I think another aspect of the flood of, I think feminism has gotten much bigger, which is a great thing. And I think women are being given more spaces to tell stories. For sure. But I think the democratization of filmmaking and writing also like you said. Yeah. I think lots of factors. Any final thoughts on the history before we move on to Carrie? I think you covered pretty much all the ones that I had written down. Another one that I like, which is another A24 movie, is The Black Coat's Daughter, which is 2015. Oh, yeah. Which is a great one with Emma Roberts, I believe. And it's it's a really great movie, so, sort of similarly demonic possession type of thing. But I that's one that I would recommend. Very cool. Um, in terms of comics, I think I missed Lola Woods from Carmen Maria Machado, oh, which reminds me a lot of your book, actually. Yeah, and, I, uh, I love, love that uh, graphic novel and Carmen Maria Machado. Uh, she's fantastic. But yeah, other books. I also, Shirley Jackson's Hangs a Man, um, yeah. 1951, which I read when I was probably 17-ish. And it just like, it's another one of those stories that like changed me on a fundamental level and like sort of, you know, in that I am today, I think, but it's a dark academia sort of uh, tale of a girl going to college for the first time. And it's loosely based on the real life disappearance of a girl at a college in Vermont. So it's just, it's very good. And it's one that like, after I finished reading it, I remember just like laying on the floor and being like, I need to process this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was a good book. The other one I'd add is, uh, my favorite thing is Monsters. So our first movie for today is Carrie. It's from 1976. Chances are, if you're listening to Horror Hangover, you know a bit about Carrie. It's the story of a teenage girl. She's a high school outcast and things only get worse when she has her first period in the gym shower. But with menstruation for her comes powerful telekinetic abilities and all leads to tragedy. So did you like the movie? I love Carrie. Yeah. Obviously, I I always find it really interesting that it is Stephen King's debut novel. Like I when I've told people that before in the past, they're like, what? Like, how how is that his debut? Because it's not very different from like his later work, like The Shining and a lot and such. It's 
because it's so feminine, which I find really, really interesting. And I, I love it a lot. Do you feel like he lands all the feminine stuff? That's probably um, the wrong way to phrase that. Um, <laughs> I should say exactly what I think. So I, I like the book. Um, I, I love the movie. I feel like the book has a lot of descriptions that are like in like, let's say Snoo Snell's head. And she'll be like jogging in gym class. And she'll be like, wow, my boobs look so good bouncing. <laughs> and it's like, what's happening? Why is she thinking that? Who's thinking that, Steven? Right. <laughs> no, there is definitely some some things in the book and a little bit in the movie as well that it's just like, this doesn't really happen that way. But yeah, I just, I don't know. Something is really intriguing to me about the fact that it is Stephen King's debut. And obviously, like, his wife, Tabitha, had a lot of input on the manuscript, I believe. But it, I don't know, it's really interesting. A very famous story that you probably heard is that he wrote, like, the beginning and then threw it away. And Tabitha rescued it from the trash can. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Which is wild. But a little more about the movie. It's directed by Brian De Palma from a script by Lawrence D. Cohen adapted from the novel by Stephen King. We've got Sissy Spacek as Carrie White, Piper Laurie as Margaret White, and both of them were nominated for Oscars for their performances. Amy Irving was played Snoo Snell, Nancy Allen as Chris Harkinson, Betty Buckley as Miss Collins, John Travolta as Billy Nolan, and William Catt as Tommy Ross. So the thing that surprises me every time I watch Carrie, did you catch in the film, her mother at one point calls her Carrietta? Yeah, it's and weird. It, it's one time, and it's always like... It always shocks me that her name is Carrietta because it seems like a bit I would do. When I told my wife, she was like, you're making that up. It's exactly (laughs) the kind of thing I would make up just to fuck with someone. Um, But our focus today is on coming of age. But before we get into that, I want to point out that Carrie is one of the most influential films in American horror history. Because I think it really catapulted Stephen King's career beyond anyone in horror before or since. Like yeah. he's a boutique industry. He sells 300 to 400 million books over his career, which is insane. Yeah. He dominates the box office and television as well with hit after hit. And I'm curious, do you think his career would have taken the same trajectory if Carrie hadn't been such a good, successful film? I for sure think it, it would have been totally different. Obviously, I think like things like The Shining and Salem's Law probably still would have stood out for him. But I think with Carrie coming first and just being so different and sort of a trailblazer in that niche, I think that absolutely like set his career on that path. And without it, I don't think it would be anywhere close to the same for in terms of his success. Yeah, I'm with you. He's one of my favorite writers. I think he's extremely talented. But I do think like the level of success he had, there's no way it would happen without this movie being such a hit. And I think it being its debut added this like level of, what's the word, like magic to him, like a shine to him where like if it happened on his fifth book, people would be like, oh, that guy's good, but not like, I think the it being his debut was like a holy shit moment for a lot of people. I totally agree. Yeah. Like it's the first thing that, he ever like put out into the world for public consumption and the first time that anyone had ever heard his name was in connection to this book and movie like that definitely influenced like the rest of his career absolutely i would uh just he he published with short stories before this i believe yeah i've come a few short stories but this was his first like public eye like large audience because i don't think magazines were that much more popular then than they are now yeah unfortunately (laughs) In her essay, Horror, Femininity, and Carrie, Shelley Stamp argues that what erupts on prom night in a monumental telekinetic display is not a wholesome sexuality unfairly repressed by the girl's mother, 
but an absolute monstrousness the film finds lurking at the heart of female sexuality. Carrie is not about liberation from sexual repression, but about the failure of repression to contain the monstrous feminine. While many others argue that the film is about sexual liberation, and I'm curious, where do you think the movie stands in regards to like, is it saying that female sexuality is monstrous or is it saying that Carrie is turned into a monster by her environment? Interesting. I feel like, you know, it's saying that Carrie is a product of her environment in that like her whole life has been repressed and it's that repression that causes her to be monstrous by the end of it and not like the the failure of repression to contain the monstrous feminine. I don't know if I totally agree with that. It's like, I don't know, you know, Carrie is this very lonely person who is you know, isolated from her peers and abused by her mother and just, you know, forced to contain who she is, forced to contain her identity. And that is what causes all this rage that she has, you know? Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I found the quote fascinating and that's why I included yeah. it. Because I'm curious, like, if anyone does agree with Shelley Stamp. I do think, like, reading the essay that she wrote, she argued that the beginning frames Carrie in the shower like Hitchcock framed Janet Lee's character in Psycho. And it turns oh. Carrie into the monster and the victim at once in the shower scene, like visually. Huh. It's a really interesting parallel. I hadn't really thought about that before. Yeah, I don't know. I guess like it definitely, you know, puts her in the position of being the victim, but... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it does do both and like makes her the victim and the villain in a way. Yeah, but I feel like that's where the argument landed least for me because mm -hmm. it feels like knowing Brian De Palma's like Hitchcock obsession mm. makes me think he wasn't going for like this like psychic double symbol thing as much as he was like, I really like Hitchcock. Let's yeah, make this look kind of like Hitchcock. <laughs> Yeah, build tension. But I'm not an academic. I taught at college for a while, but I was not built for it. And I'm not an academic. So this person yeah. probably knows a lot more than I do. <laughs> so we're talking about coming of age stories today. And I see it. We've got three in care. We've got Sue, Chris and Carrie all coming of age. I'm curious did one of these work better for you than the others. And what makes for a good coming of age arc? I don't know. I, I really like you know, Sue as almost a, she's not the protagonist of the story necessarily, but as a like resulting, as a result of the story, I feel like she would make a good pr protagonist in that she has experienced uh, all this trauma. Like, can we get into spoilers or is that not? Yeah, cool? absolutely. Um, okay. This is from 1976. If you're listening, <laughs> it's been 50 yeah. years. Or yeah, you've had time years. to watch it. You've had you've time. Had <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... I feel like, you know, Sue has lived through all of this trauma, her friends being killed by this girl who she was trying to, in a way that she thought was like a nice, thoughtful way, make her feel included by uh, lending her her prom date, which obviously did not turn out very well. It, I really like her sort of arc throughout the story in that she realizes like these things that I value are not university universally valued by my peers um everybody has different sort of things that they are after in their life and not everything is about getting the perfect prom date you know I find that that really interesting and obviously Carrie's coming of age throughout it is a lot more tragic than that um, yeah. she is breaking out of that repression that she's known her entire life 
pretty much like dominated by her mother it's yeah it it's a lot more tragic but I think Sue and Carrie as sort of foils for each other is really interesting way to look at it yeah I like what you said about Sue and I think she kind of has two coming of ages where one where she's like I was so mean to Carrie I need to be a better person and the second coming of age she's like holy shit everyone I ever knew is dead yeah (laughs) (laughs) which are very different like one's like a real coming of age well I guess people do have the holy shit everyone I know is dead but yeah I think that's a little less common yeah (laughs) it it is really interesting that's why I I like Sue as a character a lot and I would have loved to kind of see her story explored a little bit more both in the book and the movie absolutely I wish they would do like a tv show of Carrie I think there's enough in there for it to make like a very good tv show for sure. And like there's there's room to expand upon a lot of like the the subplots and stuff and such that could be, you know, expanded upon in a TV show. And I think it would make a really cool story. Yeah. And it links to Stephen King's other works in a lot of ways, especially like the psychic kid thing is in almost all of his early work. He was very yeah. into that early on. Right. Yeah. Um, so Australian film scholar Barbara Creed draws a connection that I had never made, which other people probably did because they're smarter than me. The pig blood is symbolic of menstrual blood. And both instances of bleeding come when Carrie is having a moment of pleasure. Like in the shower, she's kind of relaxing on the stage with Tommy Ross. She's having like this moment of pride. I had not yeah. drawn that connection and I probably should have. <laughs> <laughs> I de- didn't necessarily make the connection of like, they're both at moments of pleasure, but I-, I can see that for sure. But the pig's blood being symbolic of like getting your period or menstrual blood is definitely there for me. And I think that in a lot of ways, that comparison or that like representation of menstruation through the pig's blood scene at, at the prom is it very much set the scene for a lot of other like horrific uh movies and books going forward absolutely and this is more of a straight thought than uh, anything else but the gym teacher like donna Leahy pointed out on beyond the cavern in the woods which is a great podcast is the worst yeah. She hits three different students. I know. <laughs> like, it's I know. Crazy. <laughs> like, was like, that okay in the 70s? Like, for your teachers right. to hit people, hit kids? I feel like it wasn't. I feel like, <laughs> like maybe one, three yeah. different kids in a 90-minute film? <laughs> I know. It, it's crazy. <laughs> okay. Um, some stray thoughts I had. I love Tommy's hair. I got bullied for having hair like that in high school. So it was cool to see when that hair was cool. I like Um, it. I think it's cool. (laughs) John Travolta's acting while Chris is blowing him is absolutely (laughs) hysterical. I lived in Tulsa for a while and there was like an indie theater and they announced they were playing Carrie on Mm. prom night. And I did not, again, a connection I should have made, did not draw (laughs) the connection that if I went to this film screening, it would be me as a 30-year-old at a post-prom party. Yeah. <laughs> Watching that scene in particular stands out in my memory of like a scene I did not want to watch at 30 surrounded by people in prom dress. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's also weird. It, it's really funny. Chris, the, it's a girl's name, right? Um, yeah. She is just like talking normally. And, yeah, wow. yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's not how it works. <laughs> nope, nope. so another little fact brian de palma the director later married nancy allen who played chris Mm -hmm. she starred in a bunch of his films 
And then in Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Carol J. Clover points out that Carrie has an almost reversal of the male gaze with an assaultive gaze, which I thought was a very cool observation. That's really interesting. Yeah. No, I love uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. That's a really oh, yeah. fantastic exploration of the horror genre and like the coming of the, the final girl trope is really interesting. But yeah, an assaultive gaze. I like that. Yeah. So that's my thoughts on Carrie. Did you have anything you wanted to add or anything else you wanted to talk about in regards to Carrie, the book, the movie? I think we covered pretty much everything that I had wanted to talk about. I just love how this book and the movie as well set the stage for this, you know, feminine coming of age subgenre that we're talking about today. Like, I feel like Carrie walked so the ginger snaps could run in a way. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about Ginger Snap. Ginger Snaps yeah. came out in the year 2000. Um, and it's the story of two sisters, the elder Ginger, played by Catherine Isabel, and the younger Bridget, played by Emily Perkins. They're a year apart, but they're in the same grade since Bridget skipped a year. And they're inseparable until Ginger is mauled by a werewolf at the same time she's having her first period. And Bridget does her best to stop her sister's transformation. I spent a long time thinking of the word transformation there because I don't I feel like I had a lot of words that were more judgy. And one of the things, well, let's, before we talk about that, how did yeah. you like the movie? I love Ginger Snaps. It's like one of my absolute favorites. I just, I love the, it's like if Carrie had a sister, like this is what it would have, it would have been like, I feel like <laughs> it, it's just so, I love the relationship between the two, how they're both like weirdos and just outcasts. And I just, it's so fun and like so gross. I love the the werewolf transformation. I love the practical effects. It's so cool. Yeah, I did not love it the first time I watched it, but I liked it much better this time. Yeah. Um, and I think it really starts, for me at least, this really starts working once Ginger murders Tate. Mm. And there's a moment in there where... Uh, she calls Sam a cherry chaser, which I feel like before that Tate was like a like really two dimensional, just like kind of mean girl. And at mm -hmm. that point, you get this like hint, and I feel like it just all gets deeper from there. That is really interesting. Yeah, I I just yeah I just love the whole the whole thing. Good, good. I think Emily Perkins is phenomenal as Bridget. Yeah, and I'm surprised she doesn't get more work now. I mean, maybe she no. is choosing not to work for some reason, but it just seems maybe. like after this, she should have been in, in everything. She was right. Yeah, she was phenomenal. Like, I'm not. I'm not aware of anything else that she's been in. Am I missing out on something? Or it didn't seem like there was a ton of big stuff after this, and it seems like her career trajectory has just been like a rocket ship after this. Because yeah, right. she was great. Yeah. Um, so my biggest question for this one. Bridget believes she's helping Ginger the entire time. Mm. I'm curious, how true is that? Is she fighting the wolf or is she fighting Ginger growing up? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I, I think Bridget is very much afraid of Ginger growing up and leaving her behind in a way, even though they're very close in age. I, I think that she is just afraid of being alone. And so she's resistant to that fact that ginger gets her period and is like suddenly grown up quote unquote but yeah and i i think obviously it's also like she doesn't want her sister to turn into this giant monster but yeah it's a little bit of both i i feel like yeah i agree i think there's always a mix of stuff but i think some of bridget's motivations are less altruistic 
than she's letting herself believe. For sure. Yeah, I think it's a a big part of it, I think, is just that she is afraid of being alone, being left behind, and she doesn't want Ginger to grow up. Yes. And if anyone's listening, I mean this as a compliment when I'm saying, like, she's less altruistic, at least in terms of the film, in terms of the writing of the character and the Mm -hmm. acting. I think it's a compliment. The character should be complex and shit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... Did you notice, because I saw Jennifer's body way later than I saw Ginger Snap, but I saw Jennifer's body for the first time like two years ago because of like oh, yeah. the initial panning. I thought it would be bad because everyone said it was bad. I was clearly wrong because um, it's a very it good happened. movie. Yeah. But having seen Ginger Snaps and that it close together now, a lot of Jennifer's body is like shot for shot Ginger Snaps. Is it shot for shot? I haven't oh. seen them too like close together, so I haven't been able to make that comparison, but that's really cool. It's not the whole thing is shot for shot, but especially yeah. the scene where um, it's always a gift now where Megan Fox's character walks down the hallway and oh, Catherine yeah. Isabel walks down the hallway for the first time after her werewolf transformation. Right. That is the exact same shot. Oh my gosh, that's um, totally true. I didn't even think of that. That's awesome. No, yeah. I love both of those movies. They're both yeah. like some of my favorites. They're both great. And I love the title pun in this one. Yeah. Because it's like the cookie, but also the other stuff. Ginger snapping. (laughs) Like she snaps. Yeah. (laughs) It's so great. Very cool. It's a little more serious. In her essay, Legitimation, Crisis, and Recent Canadian Horror, film scholar Susie Young argues that Ginger Snap is part of a wave of Canadian genre films that defined Canada's young women in the same way Shirley Temple came to define American girlhood. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. I find it. That's incredible. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Pretty good essay, too. She also argues that Canadian arts are nihilistic because crops might not survive any brutal winter, Hmm. which is something I find fascinating as a New Englander. It's, like, sort of true, I guess. Like, I... I don't know. I never really thought about it being like Canadian movies or like works of art are nihilistic because of that reason, because the winters are so terrible. But I guess it sort of makes sense, you know, but I don't know, like we all find different ways to cope with that harsh winter of life. In yeah. a way. <laughs> so it it's interesting that, that that's the connection that that essay made. Yeah, I find it too. And I think it's also fascinating because like I think New England's very similar weather to Canada. Yeah. I never lived in Canada, so I couldn't, I could live in New England. But I also mm-hmm. think there's so many horror writers that came from New England. And I always, yeah. always felt like, like those dark winters that like, oh, it's 2 p.m. and it's getting dark. Yeah. I feel like <laughs> you go home and write a horror story after that, you know, like it, it makes sense. For sure. No, the the darkness is like ever pervading in, in New England in the winter. Like it's yeah. like you get up in the dark to go to work. And then you, when you get home from work, it's still dark. It's awful. <laughs> yep yep so a question i had just about the movie what mm-hmm. happened we're getting into spoiler territory here for any listeners what what happens to the mom at the end she goes into the party with her tupperware full of finger i know <laughs> like this is such a, a good question. detail <laughs> like this is a question i've had since the first time i saw this movie and maybe it's answered in the sequels which admittedly i have not seen yeah um, which i need to sit down and watch all of them at some point but like she's just disappeared into the party with like her little thing of fingers and it's like what happened to her where is she <laughs> someone had to notice this middle-aged woman with a tupperware yeah. with a, a just a cut off finger in it right 
if you're at a party and you see that you have questions and you're right, drunk right. enough or high enough you're gonna <laughs> ask her those questions I always found that so funny like no one she's just like stumbling through all these like drunk teenagers and like with their little Tupperware of fingers like what happened to her what's her story after this I want to know yes. what happens to the Tupperware yeah I'm- <laughs> Such a great detail, the Tupperware. <laughs> um, so we were talking about coming of age stories and the parents are either not counting Carrie where the mother is obviously like a huge source of torment for Carrie. Yeah. But parents disappear in these kinds of stories. They're either completely inept or laissez-faire or they're just dead. And so I'm curious, why does that idea keep coming back? Like all the way from Little Red Riding Hood all the way to today. Why are the parents gone in these stories? Interesting. Yeah, I I think it's just because like, as the protagonist of a coming of age story, like they need to be very self sufficient and independent. And in a lot of ways, even if in real life, like the, the author's parents may be there technically, like they, as a protagonist, they still need to be like find out uh, who they are on their own path and not have any outside influences. It's very like, individual journey. Yeah that like is regardless of whether or not you had good parents (laughs) you're still gonna have to figure things out for yourself yeah you need to kind of be on an island to learn the skills you can't have someone to turn to right I think that's kind of how it comes to or where it comes from too because it's not an interesting story if you you ask mom (laughs) and mom solves the problem with her Tupperware finger exactly yeah (laughs) so how useless are these particular parents (laughs) And how much of it is that we're in Ginger and Bridget's point of view? I, I think like, obviously the dad is used as like comic relief a little bit, but I think, you know, the mom has good intention. She's just very ignorant as to Ginger and Bridget's interests and like what they're into, their identities in a way. So I think it's definitely skewed in like an, a negative perception of them because we're in the movie with Bridget and Ginger's point of view. But if we if we were able to look at it in an objective way, like I don't think that their parents are abusive or like have bad intents or anything. I think they're just, you know, they don't fully understand them. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Um, and the same questions will carry asked. We have two coming of age stories here as I said, we have Bridget and Ginger. Do you feel like one is landing better than the other? Or you feel like they're both accurate or you feel, how do you feel about them? I I think both of them complement each other really, really well. But it, I like Bridget's coming of age in that she is, you know, seeing her older sister, even though they're, they're like basically the same age, like going through all these changes, like literally puberty and also werewolf changes and like getting uh like seeing that her experience that firsthand and then like feeling that anxiety like this is what's going to happen to me soon that it's a very anxiety inducing thing and I think it's it's telling that Bridget fights so hard against Ginger changing in those ways fights against her growing up it it is very resistant to the fact of just of coming of age in general I think both of their perspectives complement each other really interestingly yeah, absolutely. They kind of dovetail together, almost foils. Yeah. Um, I went to high school from 2004 to 2008. And like I mentioned before, it was an all boys high school. <laughs> so it's pretty much nothing like the high schools <laughs> depicted in, in any movies. Yeah. Um, which isn't to say the movies are untrue experiences, just like very different from mine. For I'm sure. curious, 
How true did ginger snaps and carry feel to your experiences in, in <laughs> high school? Yeah, definitely like ginger snaps is closer. I mean, I went to high school 2014 to 2017. <laughs> so like fairly recently, but I, there definitely is in, in like the public school system in America, at least it's very segregated in a way for lack of a better word like obviously you have the cliche like groups of people like you have the outcasts and like the overachievers band nerds stuff like that of those groups I definitely would have related to Ginger and Bridget's (laughs) perspective in high school a lot more but I think it is an exaggeration um, of like real high school experiences in America. Very cool anything else you want to talk about in relation to Ginger Snaps? I, I really like watching Carrie and Ginger Snaps together as a pair. I think these two films really complement each other nicely in that, like, obviously they both use menstruation as sort of the catalyst for this change into young women. And I think it's it's just like, I, I had this articulated in my head so nicely when I was thinking about it last night. And now that I'm here, I'm like, oh God, what was I saying? Oh, it happens <laughs> um, to me all the time. <laughs> It was like, oh man, that's a great point, but now I can't remember. But so many of these female coming of age stories deal with menstruation in some way, shape, or form. Obviously, these two are making it the main focus of yeah. of the story. But it's interesting that that is so like intrinsically connected to sexuality in a way, in a way that like male coming of age stories usually are not. I think it's a really you know, obviously there there's a connection there and in that Stephen King is a man and he's writing mm-hmm. a female point of view, but it it leaves a lot more on the table, I feel like, if, you know, going forward, and obviously some stories have already done this already, but female coming-of-age stories from a female writer's perspective or someone who has yeah. lived a female experience using menstruation not as a form of, like, reaching sexual maturity it's not exclusively tied to like suddenly being of child rearing age (laughs) it's like a you know it's the physical transformation where you're coming into your own in a way I'm like all over the place so that probably didn't make any sense but that's sort of what I've been thinking about in thinking of these two films no it was it was a good answer and it sounds like the answer of someone who's thought about it a lot from a lot of different angles, which is very, very good. Probably why your book, Let the Woods Keep Our Bodies, is so good. Uh, earlier, you've been working on this project since you were 18, so like about yeah. six years? I It took about four-ish years to write, and then like a year or so to publish, you know? Yeah. So what was the spark that started Leo and Tate's story? So I actually started writing it when I was studying abroad in college. Um, I was in London taking a bunch of English classes and reading lots and lots of Gothic literature. That was actually where I had my first exposure to Shirley Jackson. um, Nice. Because it was sort of like in my curriculum there. I think being exposed to all those different, you know, influences that deep history with gothicism especially just you know got me thinking a lot about especially the female experience within gothicism is sort of the catalyst for for the story I think. What was the Jackson you read in uh London? The Haunting of Hill House which was the first Jackson that I had read it 
yeah, I don't fully remember. It was a class that was like pretty broad because obviously that's an American work, but I was in London. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, it was about, uh, you know, like being the woman of the house um, and how haunted house stories are often derived from the female experience and like, you know, being stuck in this establishment in a way, especially in olden times, like you have this household to take care of when that is not necessarily all you want to do in life. You don't want to just spend your life sitting inside cleaning and raising kids. There's more to life than that, than being stuck in this house. Um, so I think that, yeah, that that's a whole other like subgenre that you could do probably <laughs> like yeah. haunted houses. We absolutely probably will at some point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one cool thing, I was at an event with Agatha Andrews, who hosts the She Wore Black podcast. She asked mm-hmm. a really smart question related to what you were saying. I forgot what the answer was, but it's something to do with like, um, the women's experience, women's experience is often reflected in haunted houses. Yeah. And women's fears are often like that. And for men, it's home invasions, um, okay. which I found fascinating. I don't know if I necessarily agree, but I think yeah. it's a very smart question. Huh. Um, yeah. I never, I never thought about that, but home invasion stories. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. Cause I feel like home invasions could also lend themselves pretty easily to building off of the haunted house trope and being, you know, a feminine sort of story in a way of yeah. like, you know, violating your personhood in a way. I think that there's a lot of potential there. So interesting that it would be maybe that's like the inverse of the female haunted house is like the male home invasion. That's cool. I'd have to. Yeah. yeah. Um, she's brilliant. You should check out. She wore black. If you haven't yeah. to all of our listeners, you've got some very cool stuff in this book, like the catacombs under the town and a very cool scene. I don't want to spoil involving leeches. Yes. I'm curious <laughs> how much research did you have to do to, to work out some of the stuff in the book was a lot of just personal experience or was a lot of time in the library. Well, even like uh, as a kid, I spent a lot of time in the library, you know, just one of those like kids who just sort of has their nose in a book all the time, stereotypically. But it, in terms of research, I honestly didn't do that much. (laughs) It is just sort of like my hometown is called Gray. It's in Maine, about 20 minutes or like a half hour north of Portland. And the the town in the book is called Eston. It's very fictionalized, but I drew on a lot of elements from Grey into this book. Like the the turnpike in both the book and in real life, uh, the turnpike exit leads directly right out onto the cemetery. Um, it's like the first thing you see when you get off the turnpike into the town. And it's like, that's a little weird. So in terms of like research quote-unquote a lot of it is my own lived experience yeah but I I definitely I did a lot of research into like local folk tales and like urban legends and such because all those things are so localized and like every region is going to have its own version of an urban legend even if it's not like a widespread like Bigfoot type of thing there's some urban legend out there that is probably you know sulking out in the woods (laughs) did you have a favorite that you found one actually that I used in the book a little bit spoiler free here is the black dog which is sort of an Appalachian myth urban legend type of thing where it's like this giant almost like werewolf like creature but as far as I know like it's not like a person transforming into it but the black dog is like this giant canine hulking figure that like is an omen of death essentially 
And this is one that I had not heard of before, but there's also interpretations of this black dog guiding lost hikers back onto trails in the middle of the night, um, which I think is really interesting. I've heard the death one before, but before your book, I'd not heard the one about it leading hikers. But I yeah. thought that was cool too. It's always interesting to see like the the weird wrinkles folklore takes on, especially like stuff from the pre-internet age. Because I feel like now we have like, you read it online and everybody in the entire world is going to read the exact same wording. Right. But it used to be like oral tradition. So like it would change every time. And I, I think that's fascinating. For sure. Yeah. There, there's a lot of different sort of interpretations of the black dog urban legend. Like the most popular one is that omen of death thing. But I, I really, really thought it was interesting. The, you know, helping lost hikers and like being this huge ominous, terrifying figure in in the dark in the woods can also like help you out (laughs) um be like just a friend in through the unknown very cool um so you use two timelines in the book and i'm curious when in your process did you figure out you needed to have a before and an after section was it always that way or is there a point where you're like that solved a problem good question yeah so it did not start out that way I started writing it out just in a very linear fashion, but I found that the deeper I got into the story, writing it in like a linear order that way, the more I was struggling with like how to reveal pieces of the mystery at any given time and like when to reveal certain things, when the reader should know this, but not know this. And there was a lot of overlapping sort of through lines through both like the before Tate goes missing and the after she has already gone missing that I was struggling to weave together. So at one point, like very early on in the, not very early on, probably like a year into drafting, I just like took the chapters and like rearranged them into the before and after. And like, it didn't make any sense at that point because I hadn't written it that way. But I was like, if I do this, then the reader will know this at this point, but not this. And it was like very confusing. Like it felt like a beautiful mind where he has all the mind going around. Did you take the sections to the wall or anything? I probably should have. It probably would have helped me visualize it a little bit. (laughs) Cause like that, that was like a two year process where I needed to like map out everything again and make sure that the mystery made sense still with those alternating timelines. But I'm I'm happy with how it turned out. In the yeah, end. No, the work definitely paid off. It works really well because you get the <laughs> tension from the after that carries yeah. the before through. And like you said, like you learn things when you need to learn them. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any plans for further adventures for Leo and Tate? Not at the present time, but you know, I grew to really love both of those characters throughout the my time writing the book. You know, I spent three to four years with them constantly in my brain, you know, I, I grew to really, really resonate with both of them in, in their own ways. So I would definitely be open to like doing a, either like a part two or something, but at the present time, no plans, but I, I'm intrigued. Very cool. Um, Is there anything you wished I would have asked you that I haven't yet? I'm not sure. Like in, in terms of like the coming of age theme that we're talking about, here with with both of these ginger snaps and carrie i think both of those films as well in their own ways influence let the wood keep our bodies in that our main character leo is on her own coming of age story this one does not involve menstruation so much but it is still 
a transformation of sorts in that she is suddenly aware of all the the horrors around her all the uncertainties and how unfair the world is uh in a way that she didn't fully understand when she was a kid so I definitely think that I drew on a lot of stories like these and as well as these stories themselves when I was creating this book and I think that's true for like a lot of different like different subgenres and different yeah. stories that went into this book like I feel like this book as I feel maybe a lot of debut authors feel this too but I feel like it's a amalgamation of everything I like that is just like a love letter to all the stories that I've read and consumed before in a way very very cool um you mentioned Twin Peaks and My Best Friend's Exorcism which are yeah. two like and we don't get to talk about them because they're not I guess My Best Friend's Exorcism is a coming of age coming story of age, yeah yeah um Twin Peaks I wouldn't call it that but I guess you could couldn't you an argument could like be um a couple of like characters like Aubrey Horn for example Audrey Horn yeah you could say she like, came of age yeah, I think an argument could be made for that, for sure. Um, I don't think it's the the main point of that story, but I think there's definitely like a subplot there. Absolutely. Yes. I guess I brought them up just to say you have the coolest comps. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So I love both of those stories so much, especially Twin Peaks. I love the weirdness of it. Yes. And I think David Lynch does a lot of work with like that small town vibe that has always really resonated with me being from a little town in Maine I'm sure you can relate but yeah it's just a really really great vibe I grew up in the suburbs of New York City basically like it was oh, really? Connecticut but I was two hours away from Manhattan oh god gotcha. like take the train in all the time so it was like a little different it was New England still because it's Connecticut but it was it was yeah. not a small town it was a small city gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. yeah well thank you for coming on tell yeah. our listeners where they can find you online yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter slash X, whatever the fuck it's called, at Ellie M. Roy. I had to think about my handle for a minute. I don't even remember. Um, and then I'm also on Blue Sky at E.M. Roy and Instagram at Ellie M. Roy as well. And you can order Let the Wood Keep Our Bodies directly from Ghoulish Books on their website. And I think that's everything. I'm so bad at promoting myself, man. I have no idea. <laughs> no, you were great. You were great. <laughs> you said all the things. Everybody, thanks for listening. Um, check out my Patreon and check out Cass's book, The Caretaker, which is awesome. <laughs>